Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Joe Barksdale. What a great guest and a very raw and real human being. I was extremely moved at how well the episode was received. If you have not heard our very real in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. Well, folks, we have done it. We have made it to the milestone of 200 episodes. That's right, folks, 200 episodes, and we have a spectacular episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Brian O'Halloran, the actor who made Dante Hicks such a memorable character in the immortal film classic Clerks and its subsequent sequels. Brian will be discussing his approach to acting, working with Kevin Smith, the cult classic Vulgar, his love of hockey and Formula One, plus so much more. This is an incredibly in-depth interview, and no stone is left unturned, so sit back and enjoy. This was taped long before the sag after strike, and we, of course, stand in solidarity with their cause. So let's get Brian out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in today from the great state of Pennsylvania, legendary actor and an all-around great guy, Brian O'Halloran. Brian, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Hey, Derek. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, out here in the uh, northeast Pennsylvania area, uh, we just went through our Memorial Day weekend, uh, which was absolutely gorgeous. And it's uh, continuing. It's continuing to be really nice up here. In the mountains are about 74, 75 degrees, while if you go down towards uh, central Jersey or New York City, there in the the mid 80s so it was a a great great holiday weekend nice 
So as the pandemic is finally coming to an end, uh, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Ooh, uh, I don't think it's come to an end in the sense that it's not a, I mean, a pandemic label is definitely uh, has been pulled off of it. I'm still kind of uh, nervous about it. I mean, I caught it once from a, a convention that I was in Chicago with, and it's not fun uh, at all. I mean, I was vaxxed and boosted by the time I got it, and it was the, uh, the Omicron uh, variant. But, you know, uh, until it gets completely, uh, you know, taken out, which is almost impossible because so many people are not getting vaccinated, not getting boosted. Obviously, that's their choice. But that allows variants of all sorts to start up. So I'm just waiting for some oddball kind of situation in some far off country going like, there's a new strain of it and it's like leprosy. It eats the flesh <laughs> right off the bones. And then we'll see how quickly people are like, oh, give me my booster. <laughs> That's no argument there. So it's, either we, that, it's either that or it attacks some sort of sexual function. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying out there? Yeah. Like uh, yeah. all of a sudden, like you can't perform. Yeah. I guarantee you guys will be lining up for 15 of those shots. <laughs> so every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? Well, my family came from Ireland on the West Coast, Galway, uh, in 1965. My father came first in 64, and then my mother with my two older brothers came afterwards. Uh, and they settled down in the Bronx in New York City. I was born in Manhattan at uh, Jewish Memorial Hospital and then raised in the Bronx from, the, from when I was born to the age of 10. Then we moved to northern Jersey, uh, and then we were there for about four years in Palisade Park. Uh, and then we moved to central Jersey in Old Bridge, New Jersey, uh, where my mother still resides to this day. You know, growing up in New York City in the 70s, a lot of things going on, especially in New York City. New York City uh, financially uh, was not doing well at all in the 70s. A lot of like burning buildings, uh, landlords would burn their buildings down literally on purpose for insurance purposes. Uh, so they didn't have to maintain their buildings. You know, we had the, the Son of Sam killings that happened. We had the blackout of 77. We had the blizzards of 78. We had the uh, Yankees, Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson, Lou Pinella, all those guys winning uh, boatloads of uh, World Series rings. Um, and we had, uh, you know, a crazy Son of Sam killing, like I said before, and, uh, and other things. So it was fun, you know, there was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was no, you know, there was literally, you know, seven TV channels at best until, you know, closed circuit television started and then, you know, Wilco kind of table and all this other stuff. But it was hanging out with friends, you know, um, I was seven when Star Wars came out and that's what blew my mind as a kid. So uh, I wanted to get every toy that my, you know, hardworking, lower middle-class parents could not afford kind of a thing and just play outside all the time. It was the don't come in until the lights come on on the street corners kind of world. And that's the world we lived in. You know, it's amazing that you're a child of, immigr of immigrants, um, same with me as well. Uh, I remember growing up in Great Britain, we had four channels. And yeah. I didn't, I, we came to America, and all of a sudden, you were bombarded with, you know, 100 channels. And I remember we didn't even have color TV until we came to America. So these little things that you take, a, you take for granted in America that you just don't understand, you know, in other countries, you just don't have these things like dishwashers, microwaves. Right. So I, I totally understand. I, res I respect that. 
I had an aunt in Sligo uh, in Ireland, and she still had a bathroom that was separate from the main living quarters, from the main house. So uh, it was an outhouse that then get built around and had plumbing attached to. But that was uh, the design back in those days. And, uh, you know, it's yeah. still like that in some other countries to this day. So yeah. we're not far from it, really. So you identify as a Jersey kid or you, are you more or less a New York City boy? You know, um, I, I kind of identify more as a New Yorker. I don't deny I've lived a majority of my life in New Jersey and I pull for a lot of Jersey causes except their sports teams. I just, <laughs> I'm not a New Jersey sports team guy. I mean, there's only really one sports team. It's, it's the, the Dead Devils, the high, hockey team. You know, the basketball team went to Brooklyn. Yes, the two football teams for New York play in New Jersey, so they get the tax benefit of it. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I'm very always in the corner pulling for New Jersey. New Jersey has given me a lot of uh, gifts in my life. It's given me many opportunities. Um, but if I'm to travel the world and they're like, where are you from? I'm from New York kind of a thing. Or they are surprised when I root for New York sports teams. Like my favorite sport is hockey. My favorite hockey team is the New York Rangers. And so a lot of people like, wait a minute, you're a Jersey guy. How come you're not a Devils guy? And I try to explain to them, like, I was a fan of the Rangers before the Devils even existed or, you know, that kind of a thing. They've always been talking about, I live here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They've been talking about bringing an NHL team here for the longest time. Don't think it'll ever happen. We have uh, the Tulsa Oilers here which they're a farm team for the stars, if I remember correctly. Right. That's and correct. uh, we have a hard enough time filling that arena just to see the yeah. Oilers. So to bring an NHL team here would never happen. But that being said, I would love to actually see a professional NHL game one day. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. It's such a fast moving game. You know, you're in a very well air conditioned room uh, arena, so you're not, not going to be sweating. Uh, right. Weather, weather really doesn't impact the game unless the city has a huge blizzard or tornado or something like that. And it looks like they're going to move Arizona at some point. The city, the city of Phoenix and um, had voted to not build them an arena. They were playing at the University of Arizona's basketball arena. And they're not going to build them anything either. So uh, it looks like they may move. Uh, I have a funny feeling they might be going to like Quebec or something <laughs> like that. I mean, Quebec had a team and then they lost them. And, you know, they're they're clamoring for another team again up there. So, we'll never, you know, we'll see. We'll see who, who gets that lottery. <laughs> so what age did you decide you wanted to be an actor? Well, I always acted out as a child. Like I was always, you know, I'm the youngest of three sons. In, in total agreement with my older brothers, I was spoiled. I, I was given a lot more leeway than they were at certain things. Um, but my middle brother, Paul, he got involved in like school plays. Like, so my one brother, Mark, he's nine years older than me. My other brother, Paul, he's six years older than me. So he got involved in like school plays and stuff. And obviously my parents and I would go see it. And uh, I was kind of like, oh, I want to do that too, kind of a thing. My father was kind of a character. He was a very funny man. I was always uh, a, a real good center of, of attention at any type of so social kind of gatherings. And I, I admired my father a lot. And seeing him just telling jokes and telling stories and, and getting the attention from you know a room of people quite easily, he was very comfortable with it. And so I, I think being around both my older brother and my father, I wanted to do something similar to that. Like I knew I could, I'd have fun doing it. Now, is that what I wanted to be? 
I wanted to be like my dad, who was an automotive mechanic and engineer. Um, and so I wanted to do that. So I would go with him to his job when he worked uh, for the Renault uh, car company and stuff like that on, on Saturdays. And, and he'd teach me things and show me how certain tools worked. And I thought I was leaning down that track. And um, he got ill when I was about like 12. And then he passed away when I was like 15. And it kind of rocked my world and I didn't know what to do. Um, and so in the meantime, what filled that hole was actually role-playing like D&D and, and other type of, of role-playing games like Villains Vigilantes, things like that. Got me out of A, the kind of depressive feel of losing my father, but the circle of friends that I surrounded myself with, uh, it, it was a great circle of create, you know, creative people. And the, the fact of role-playing is acting, but at a table kind of, um, was something uh, I gravitated to. And then from there, would go out for high school plays and community theater and stuff like that. I lost my father a couple of years ago. There was a phrase someone said to me not long ago. It was, uh, great fathers cast long shadows. And I was, that's a, that's, I truly, truly believe that. He, he, my father was a great man, I, much like yours, I assume. So, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I'm sorry for the loss of your dad. Um, no, sorry for the loss of thank yours. You. Thank you. I, I know fathers, uh, um, do cast a huge shadow on their sons, especially. And so because of that, because of uh, the influence he had on me and, and the influence um, that I enjoyed uh, by doing things with him, we would watch movies together, like the old black and white movies, like, you know, Jimmy Cagney and Bogart movies. And, and then we'd watch like things like the honeymooners and, you know, uh, Dick Van Dyke show and, and all these classic you know, schools of, of how to do comedy, especially. And, you know, uh, if you want to learn any, every, everything and anything on how to do comedy, I always say, watch the entire series of the 13 years of Monty Python's Flying Circus, because they do satire, they do physical comedy, they do, you know, impersonations, they do political satire, they do uh, tons of stuff that you just take the theme of what they're saying, put in modern kind of information and you can still get that that same type of response so in watching all those types of films and tv shows and you know saturday cartoons uh, taught you timing almost about how to do certain things especially physical humor or slapstick um you can build you can build from that as a kid and that and that's what i did what sort of uh, acting were you doing pre-clerks um i was doing <laughs> funny enough I was doing more dramas and more kind of uh, suspense thrillers kind of plays. So I was, and I was always cast as like of the villain or the, the, the Weasley, you know, assistant or like I did Dracula three different times and I played Renfield three different times. And it was that those type of roles that I really relished, you know, the heavy drama where, especially live theater, if you're hearing in the audience, people kind of choking back tears or even some people just going, <laughs> you know, like, you know, crying, you know, you got them at that point. Same thing with comedy in live theater. If you have to hold for laughter because the laughter is going really long and you'll hold and then you get to say the next line as the laughter is dying down. That's that's the the thing I enjoy most acting, especially acting in a live theater. When I get a live audience together and, and can get that 
reaction, that immediate gratification of a reaction, uh, I'm in my sweet spot. That's amazing. All right, so this next question is a two-parter. And that is, when I say the name Kevin Smith, what emotions do you feel? And what is the first words that come to your mind to describe him? Um, the emotion I feel is uh, endearing friendship that has grown over the, the decades. And the words to describe him, first of all, uh, he's a prolific genius. He's, um, he really has a pulse for what we were going through in our early 20s, what he was going through, what everybody surrounding him was feeling at that point uh, while trying to make Clerks 3. But he kind of buckled down. He was like, I'm just going to I'm going to do it instead of just talking about wanting to do it. He did it. He put, you know, money on credit cards of money that he didn't have. He borrowed money from family members. He sold, you know, a car that was in his driveway that he was he was working on with Jay Muse, funny enough. And he put it, you know, he put his own entire comic book collection he sold or consigned it to get money and then bought it back after Clark sold. So that tenacity about him, that never-ending striving to do more, plus also he takes risks. You know, he got into this, the podcasting industry, when maybe five other people were doing it at the time, when the industry was like, that'll be a fad kind of a thing. It's like, you know, YouTube channels, you know. Uh, He was doing... When we first came out and uh, a fan who now has been a, one of his longest employees or people he hires, uh, Ming Chen, you know, built his website for a bulletin board and he would interact with fans. And he was one of the first to do that, to, to actually interact with his fans directly through the Internet. They'd ask a question, he'd type it right back and, and things like that which, you know, naturally progressed into podcasting. And now he does the evening with Kevin Smith kind of shows or, or or the Jay and Silent Bob get old shows or the Hollywood Babylon with Ralph Garman shows. He loves being in front of an audience because he's such a good storyteller. He just knows he's his timing to bring up a topic and to spit out like, like a rap artist almost. He can spit out like five bars of a topic that are really insightful or funny or moving. And I've really been blessed that that person, that that creative energy was my introduction into film. Um, but not only my introduction to film, but an introduction to the person that is Kevin Smith, who we developed a friendship for, that we got to work together on, that he was so generous in letting me be a part of so many of his other films throughout the years. Hmm. How did an audition for Clerks come about? It came about through um, the First Avenue Playhouse, uh, which if your listeners have uh, seen Clerks 3, we feature it. It's the, the same playhouse that we all auditioned at in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. So I was doing community theater uh, for about two, three years at that point. And Joe Bagnoll, who's featured in the original Clerks and again in Clerks 3, he's the gentleman who, while the cat takes a poop in front of, uh, he's him and his wife are the owners uh, of the First Avenue Playhouse. And Kevin, when he was, you know, looking to produce the original Clerks, he's like, well, now I need actors. Where would you find actors? Well, of course, you go to your local community theater. That's where the local actors work. That's their gym, so to speak. So he had contacted Joe. He's like, I want to use your theater to audition for a film I'm going to be making in a couple of months. Um, Can I use your theater to hold auditions in? 
And also, could you call your stable of actors? Because there'd be a wall when you walked into the lobby of that place that had like tiny little, you know, five by, you know, five by four squares, headshots that are just regular cameras of all the people that worked in almost all the shows in that house. And so, you know, you'd see all these people on the wall, like a good 50, 60 people of community people, people from the community. Can I use, can you call them and, and let them know that we're doing this as well as he put in an audition notice in the, the paper that would come out every Wednesdays. So a month beforehand, Joe Begnoll had called me saying, Hey, Brian, there's some young guys who were, came in and they want to audition for hold auditions for a film they're making in the area. And in just giving a breakdown of the script, I can see there's a lot of people of your age, you know, who are characters, you should come and audition for it. I'm like, sure. When is it? He's like, uh, next month on such and such a date, it'll be the Sunday night and the Monday night. I'm like, okay. I was working at a different theater during that time on another play. The whole month goes by. I totally forgot. Sunday comes and goes. Monday morning, I get a phone call because this is 93. This is before you know, cell phones before the inter the internet, you literally just called someone's house and they had an answering machine. You know, there wasn't really any voicemail either for the most part, or and if there was, I didn't have it. So mm -hmm. I had an answer machine and I heard my answer machine pick up after this ring in the morning, like around 10 in the morning, whatever it was. And I hear, Hey, Brian and Joe Bagnall. It's like, Oh shit. And I picked up the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Stop the tape. And like, yeah, it's me. I'm here. What's, what's up, Joe? He goes, Hey, Brian, I thought you were going to come for this audition. What happened? I'm like, Oh my God. I totally forgot about that. That was last night, right? He's like, yeah. I was like, it's again Monday, right? He goes, yep. And he's like, all right, what do they need? He's like, well, headshot, a resume, and a, and a monologue. Just be prepared with your own kind of monologue. I'm like, oh, okay, sure, sure, sure. So I did. I cobbled together a monologue from a dialogue from a play I was doing called Wait Until Dark, which was a film uh, in the late 60s. And uh, it's a real like sinister kind of plot. And once again, I was playing the, the villain in that, that play. So I put together this evil kind of monologue and uh, auditioned. Uh, people who have, if your listeners have the Clerks 10-year anniversary edition, the Clerks X edition, uh, they have all of our audition, all of our auditions on one of the uh, extra DVDs to show you, you know, extra scenes and stuff like that. Um, it's a it's a great tape to watch, uh, a great video to watch how not to audition. Because I, <laughs> uh, But he liked what he did, had me come back two more times for callbacks at the Leonardo Recreational Center just with Kevin and then once with Marilyn to see a compatibility reading, which was funny because we both did that play, Wait Until Dark Together. So when she saw me come in for that read, she's like, oh, my God, you, are you, you're doing this? I'm like, well, I don't know yet, but, yeah, I'd love to. So she was very happy to see that I was a part of it, and I was very happy to see that she was a part of it. And then, you know, history tells that, you know, we, we got to work together as boyfriend and girlfriend. The character of Dante Hicks has given you so much in life. How did you approach that character? When reading it and seeing where it was coming from, it wasn't far off feelings of what people in their early 20s were feeling. The character was written, you know, a bit whiny, a bit kind of like, you know, uh, oh, woe is me kind of feeling. But I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to make him a caricature of someone like that. He thought what he was doing was right. And if he feels that, man, I'm not even supposed to be here today. If he feels like that kind of 
energy in him, you know, he's just going to let it out. So the part of, of Dante, that's the people pleaser type there, there is a part of me that's very people pleasing. I don't want to cause an issue with anybody type of thing, but then the, the part of Randall, who's incredibly sarcastic and acerbic, I can be like that a lot, actually. So I related more to the Randall character in that sense, but in the fact of being polite and getting things done and being a responsible employee, it was not hard for Brian to to pull that off. And then you just, just throw in that kind of annoying kind of whiny, uh, you know, well, why is it going to happen to me kind of feeling it, it, it wasn't hard to step into those, those Doc Martens. <laughs> what is it like to collaborate with Jeff Anderson? Mm. Working with Jeff is awesome. In the very beginning, like he had never acted before. So in the very beginning in 93, he was incredibly nervous. You know, I I approached the script as I would have approached, you know, a, a stage play where I would want to learn all my lines, get it all down before we start filming anything, like get it in a complete arc so I know where the story is going. And that's what you do in a play. But in a film, you shoot out of order because of A, people's availability, B, you only have certain locations for certain times or certain days of the week. And C, uh, sometimes as you're filming, if you need other things for certain scenes and they haven't been delivered yet or you don't have them ready, you just you have to shoot something. You can't just say, well, well let's hold everything until we get that done. So th with that in mind, one, when me and Jeff were just me and Jeff, there's just this chemistry from the very beginning that we just were able to bounce off each other quite easily. And Kevin was really like, ooh, I, I like the sound of them together like this. And I hope I put him to, at ease. Uh, later, years later, he says, yes, it's, he, I've been very fun to, to work with because I do put him at ease. There's never really huge pressure on him to, to like, get it right, man, you know, that type of thing. I, I'm never that type of person. But I do respect people who put in the work. And he did. He did in the beginning. And then come Clerks 2, you know, he was he was way off a of book before even I was off book, which was shit to show, like, how much he was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I got to go all in. Uh, and then for three, we both were really, really, really all in, pushing the emotional buttons, making sure, you know, if this was going to be a last, the last one, uh, we go out with a bang, so to speak. Mm. The story of how Clerks gets picked up by Miramax is legendary. But the, what I want to know is, what was life like for you the months around that time? Uh, regular. <laughs> you know, I worked I worked at a, uh, a barware manufacturer in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I was just doing my job. S still, you know, uh, auditioning for other plays, you know, seeing if I can even get an agent to begin with. So once once Miramax picked it up at the 94 Sundance Film Festival, there still was a whole summer, uh, spring and summer, of, of Miramax and Kevin and Scott working on it, cleaning it up, blowing it up to 35 millimeter, putting in a whole new soundtrack with, you know, really hot bands at the time, and making it more palatable for the general audiences. You know, Kevin, I think, cut out like 23 or 24 minutes from that very first screening cut that we had uh, in the, at the New York Film Festival. Uh, 
the New York independent feature film market is the actual name. And then at Sundance, I would stop in from time to time. They would call me up going, hey, Bri, uh, we need a, just a quick ADR, a little voiceover of something to cover up something because we've edited some things and we have to still connect the two. Can you come in? And they had a studio in Manhattan that they were doing all the audio cleanup. So I went in there and did like six or seven words or lines that had to be cleaned up. It was interesting because then once it came out, you know, it, it, it went to, I think, like 300 and something theaters, all these independent kind of owned theaters. It made $3 million in its brief two, three month run. But where where it picked up speed was colleges. You know, if it was, you know, uh, Miramax, especially back then, was incredibly aggressive in promotions. So they did a, like a music producer would have a street team handing out CDs. Hey, listen to my mixtape kind of a thing. Um, they sent Kevin and Scott to different colleges to have screenings for colleges because that was exactly our demographic that we wanted to catch on to this, to, to really see this film. And from there, um, then, you know, like nine months later, it came out on VHS for video rental. Uh, kids, ask your grandparents what that's about. Uh, well, you'd actually have to walk out and go to a store to see a movie, to get a movie and bring it home. And you were only allowed at most three videos to take home at once. That's where the passing it around, the, the word of mouth really, really took on a, a, its own craziness to the point where it was like one of the most rented and unreturned movies. We had an executive come up to us at one of these um, video uh, store conventions where companies are trying to convince in, you know video store owners to order more of their their movies and so we had the guy one of the lead executives from blockbuster come to us and go do you know your movie is the most stolen and unreturned movies in our chain <laughs> we were like well that's our fan base a bunch of cheap thieves would you like to order 20 more cases it was that kind of feel that the word got out and it was a stoner heavy kind of crowd that loved this movie that would watch it just to sit back and chill like, yo, you'll never believe it. I mean, I remember movies like that when I was a kid, you know, or early, you know, 12, 13, 14, it was like Porky's. It was like, you know, Animal House. It was that kind of movie. Like, you got to see this movie, man. It's crazy. Uh, you know, Faces of Death was handed around at lunchrooms, like things like that. These are the type of the the fans that you wanted it to be. You wanted it to get into that that part of the culture. And then one of the other things they did to promote it was uh, in 1994, they had a Woodstock reunion, you know, up in upstate New York in Woodstock. It's a big concert again for a whole weekend. And at night when there were no bands playing, they would just show movies. And they showed clerks. At like one in the morning in front of like 50,000, you know, tripping kids doing whatever. And uh, so technically we played Woodstock, uh, <laughs> not the original, but the 94 version. So th th those type of things really got things going as far as how it changed my life. Every once in a while, people are like, oh, my God, why do you look familiar? Oh, shoot, you were in that that movie in, in about Jersey, right? That kind of thing. 
it would allow me to then get into auditions in front of people that I normally wouldn't have gotten in front of. I was able to get an agent out of it, things like that. But it wasn't like this from then it was, you know, skyrocketed and he did this and he did that. I still did a lot of theater. I, I still do from, yeah, I haven't done a show in about five years, but I'd love to do a theater show uh, again. Um, I've been doing stand up from time to time. So that's, that's been giving me my live audience fix. Plus I do a lot of comic cons, which gives me a lot of my live audience fix. So, you know, I, I did the LA thing for a while. I would go out there for like two months at a time and then come back home another two months for, to work on something and then come back home. I was actually getting more work on the East coast than it was on the West coast. I'm not that kind of leading male, you know, you know, uh, you know, NCIS or, you know, law and order SVU, you know, it's, it, that's not me. It'd be one of the, the, the guys committing the murders maybe, but, but not, <laughs> a man. but you always play the villain, right? So, but you're usually better written parts. So exactly. I always enjoyed them. Uh, I relished it. And it was just so funny because after this film, I was seen more as like the, 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 the sappy friend, the, the, mm. you know, the straight guy to all the comedy, as opposed to the guy delivering the comedy. Okay. Duval nation. We are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Brian O'Halloran. May I you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right. Cluzo style. Out with the bad air. In with the good. Out with the bad air. In with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Hello, Duvall Nation. Derek Duvall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. 
Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. This is Marielle Sanji, the author of The Absinthe Frappe from LSU Press. Have you ever wondered about the mysteries of absinthe? The spirit is packed with history, and in my book, I explore the myths and facts behind this elusive liquor. What is it about absinthe that appealed to artists like Vincent van Gogh? How did the absinthe frappe cocktail take the country by storm in the 19th century? Why was absinthe banned? And how were the restrictions on absinthe lifted? Dive into the world of absinthe in the absinthe frappe, available wherever you prefer to buy your books. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. We're Sam's Army in the Gang's all here. Sam's Army in the Gang's all here. Sam's Army in the Gang's all here. For glory, the cup and then the drinks of beer. Oi, this is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all the streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. 
This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to our Milestone Episode 200 of The Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with Clerks actor Brian O'Halloran. Now, you are the star of one of the most easily underground cult classics in the history of cult classics, Vulgar. First Mm. off... What do you remember reading the script and working with Brian Johnson? I remember Brian Johnson contacting me and saying, hey, man, I, I wrote a script with you in mind. I'd love to get your feedback on it. I was like, sure. Uh, so I went down to Kevin's offices. His offices were still in Red Bank where he was when he was still living in New Jersey. Um, so I went down there. He gave me and he goes, it's a bit of a trip. So, you know, let me know what you think. I immediately went home, started reading it, and it was, now the film itself is very dark. There's some subject matter that is really disturbing for people. This, the first draft of Vulgar was absolutely vile and and just so debauched and so really over the top that I was like, what you, you know, I called him up halfway through reading. You're like, you thought of me when you wrote this? <laughs> sick, twisted mind do you have against me? But at the same time, I was flattered that he thought my talent uh, was strong enough to tackle these things, to, to be able to do what he wanted to do and do it justice. So Brian, the actor was like, yo, this is messed up, but ooh, how dark. And fun would it be to play this kind of character and and to play just to get the audience's reaction out of that. So once he was able, I think it was like by draft four, we got it to a shooting draft. Uh, Once we got it to that point and started shooting, it was fun. It was fun working with Brian Johnson, A, as my co-star, but also B, as the director. We had Monica Hampton was our producer, uh, you know, Kevin was, was the, uh, the producer as well. He had funded it and we got to work with a lot of our friends from the view askew films, you know, Jay shows up in it. Kevin is in it. Dave Klein, who was our DP from the original clerks was in it. Scott Mosier. There's just a ton of really great people that we got to work with. Ethan Supley. We got to work with Matthew Mayer, the other person who plays uh, the other brother in it, Jerry, who plays the father in it. And it was back to that feel of shooting clerks, very guerrilla kind of shooting. Uh, we, we could afford color this time, so that was a good step up. And we had a much, an actual sizable crew. So it was definitely a size up. But we had Dave Klein shooting this one as well, So uh, which I really enjoyed working with Dave again, who now shoots all the Mandalorian, ep- most of the Mandalorian episodes and stuff like that. 
Um, so that that film, when fans bring that up, first of all, it's like when I have them, like when I have the DVDs to sell, I owe every show I go to, whenever it comes up in a Q&A, people come back to my table and they want to buy copies of it because I tell them how disturbing it is without giving it away. And I said, look, it's a movie that when Brian Johnson went on Howard Stern to promote it, Howard said, listen, I got to tell you guys, I had to stop halfway through. Not because the movie's bad. It's just, it's too messed up even for me. So for us, promotion-wise, like the movie that even Howard Stern couldn't finish. <laughs> you know, we we totally pushed that angle on him. Um, it was good. It was good to see people get really messed, like, yo, that that's fucked up. That's just so weird. Um, so, and, and, you know, over the past five years, especially at the start of the lockdown of the pandemic, uh, Brian Johnson was talking about writing a sequel. And he had a really good idea where it would, would take, how, you know, how you would explain the time passing. And then um, like eight or nine months later, he goes, oh, you know, I scrapped that first draft of what I was working on. I only got like 10 pages in or whatever, but I have a better idea for the whole synopsis of what I'm looking for. And I was like, do it, do it. So he started writing it. Uh, then he met his now wife at the time, and then they fell in love for like a year, and then they got married. So I was like, you know, I gave him their whole, you know, let them be. This school is really great for him. He just recently moved into a new house. So I'm going to start bugging him again. I'm like, hey, what happened to Vulgar 2? Let's do this. Because everybody, he reached out to everybody as well who was part of it um, to say, hey, would you be interested in doing a part two? And almost to everybody said, absolutely. I don't know how you're going to do it. And then when he tells them the quick synopsis, go, oh my God, let's totally do that. So um, I think the fan base is there to do it and for us to make the money back, um, especially if we do the same formula that Kevin's been doing for his past couple of films, which is road showing it, uh, especially a dark film like that, I think would be amazing as a road show kind of gig. So, yeah. but Johnson is a nervous traveler, I, I feel. Um, so I don't know how that would work out for him, but we'd see. It's been a long time since I've actually sat through Vulgar, but uh, it definitely leaves a it leaves a mark on you. There's no question yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. So this so when you, what do you remember when Kevin told you he was making a sequel to to Clerks, and were you weary about returning to such an iconic role? Um, we were working on uh, the 10 year anniversary DVD. Um, they had flown me out to LA to do some voiceovers because one of the things that we had done was for the 10 year anniversary DVD, we actually animated the missing uh, funeral parlor scene. We weren't allowed like the, the Polson's funeral home in, in the town that Kevin grew up. They were like, absolutely after the, and I'm talking about the original script of clerks when they, they were like, no, absolutely not. We will not have you come in here, do that kind of thing, blah, blah, blah. So that's when Kevin kind of wrote the, the work around of it happens, you hear the scream, something knock over, and then you see us running out. So he decided we had done the clerk's cart, the short lived clerk's cartoon series in 2000. Uh, what if we did something similar in the animated style uh, and actually animate that missing scene? So, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino did that with Kill Bill uh, when he was telling the story about Oshi Ren. You know, it, it went into this animated part of the, the movie. So it was kind of like, oh, if it works for Quentin, it can work for us. Um, 
So uh, once we did that is when he we were done with the voiceover work and he was driving back to the hotel. He's like, by the way, I have something else I got to tell you. It's something huge. I'm like, yeah, what's up? He's like, how would you feel about doing a sequel to Clerks 2, uh, to, to the original Clerks? And I was just like, oh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, where are they? What do we where, what do we have in mind? And he told me the brief overview of it. I'm like, oh, shit. That sounds cool. Yeah, I'm I'm on board. Um, and from that point on, like a couple of weeks later, he then sent me the script. And I was I really enjoyed what I saw. Um, we saw that it was going to be Bob and Harvey producing it, which they did a great job with the first clerks. They did a great job with Chasing Amy. They did a great job uh, with Saving Dogma. So it was kind of like, a you know, when they they produced Jane Silent Bob uh, Strikes Back. So it was a no-brainer to have them back on board as the producers and stuff. And um, and I was ready to go. I know Jeff was very hesitant about doing it. He felt like, whoa, why would you want to screw up, you know, what we now have built with this Clerks, the iconic thing? Like, you know, you saw what happened to the cartoon. You know, we, we've burned through those characters kind of a thing. And Kevin was like, no, no, there's more life to this. We can definitely do it. And, you know, they're like his, the Jay, the Silent Bob, the Dante, and the Randall are like his favorite toys, the four favorite toys he likes to play with. So he likes to dust them off and see where they are in this level of their lives. So uh, once contracts were done and we were, we were, you know, we were ready to go and casting had started. Um, and then we had a table read in L.A. They flew me out there. They put me up in like an extended stay kind of an apartment. Uh, not far from Kevin's house. And uh, Jeff had been living out there since 95 in LA. So he just drove over and we did a reading once with Kevin, Scott Mosier, myself, and uh, Jeff. And then we did another reading later in the afternoon that Rosario could make. Uh, and the difference between that first you know, read through and the second one was like night and day was literally like very like, uh, where are we getting at? And then boom, once she sat in the room, man, that machine was well-oiled and ready to go to the point when, after we said goodbye to Rosario, she was actually filming something in LA at that time. So she had to run. Um, Kevin turned to both me and Jeff and like, what was that? <laughs> and we're like, what are we talking about? I was like, where was that on the first, that wasn't the first step. That wasn't the first rehearsal. Where did all this come from? And I was like, you got an A-list actor in the room. We're gonna, I, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't going to just walk through it, like say the lines. I was going to, you know, got to zhuzh it up a little bit. That's awesome. So speaking of Rosario, what is your favorite memory of working with her on that film? Uh, there's so many. Uh, she's so, she's such a really great down-to-earth woman incredibly talented but also she's also a new yorker uh she's a latina she's hilariously funny but she's also a super nerd so she's into comics and sci-fi and and all that stuff so you could you can swap stories and discuss any topics like any of your comic book nerd friends gamer friends what have you and she she can spit bars right back at you 
And at the same time, she can look good doing it, but also she has swagger about her. She had confidence about her that was just so you wanted to be a part of. You just wanted to have that energy. So it was an amazing, an amazing gift to have her as part of Clerks 2. Clerks 3, you know, her star from Clerks 2 to the time we were shooting Clerks 3 had blown up like a friggin' supernova. And she was just pulling in like a black hole. All these projects she was doing, like was just being sucked in and she was doing them. Um, so, you know, to get her for the amount of time for that character of Becky to be a full cast member of that entire movie, uh, would have, we would still be waiting for her availability. We probably wouldn't have had her to like 2026 or something like that. Um, so Kevin, uh, wrote it in a way. And even when he gave us clerks three, a couple, like seven years ago, he wanted to do a clerks three. And it was a much darker version of a Clerks 3. Uh, he's talked about it on a few other podcasts and live shows, uh, how dark it was. So Becky was not long in that movie either, because even back then, she was a rising star. So with that, with that in mind, when that fell through because of just differences with what the, we thought the script would be about, who was being producers of it, and that kind of thing, it got shelved. Uh, then Kevin... A couple of years later, he went on to do other movies, Yoga Hosers and other films. And he then had his heart attack, came, survived the heart attack, thank God, and uh, went on to do Jane Silent Bob reboot. I was a, fortunate enough to be a part of that. Really fun to be a part of that. We shot it down to New Orleans. New Orleans a hilariously fun town, obviously, without without even making movies. But to make a movie and have a fun time in, in New Orleans was a bonus. So that when it came for this version of Clerks 3, a lot more went on in the sense of like, Kevin had a story now that made more sense to him that was literally coming from the heart, as opposed to the first idea, which was literally all made up. Kevin's never lived what, what, what happened to those characters. He was only just, you know, creatively just writing to write. This was more of like, I want a message to say, and this is what I think we should, how we should do it. And uh, when, when I first read it, I'm not going to lie, I cried uh, while reading it, but I understood why he was writing it the way he was writing it. And then the actor again, Brian, the actor said, this is going to be a beautiful challenge to get it right because the words are so important. Uh, the characters mean so much for so many people for so long, for almost 30 years, uh, that you, this is, this is out of all three of the movies, this is the movie you cannot fuck up on or skate through by just being basic Dante. You gotta, you gotta get this Dante to a matured in pain kind of Dante and, and put in the work. And, and that's what I did. I, and same thing with Jeff, he put in the work for it and Jay and Kevin, man, they went on diets and trimmed down and and uh really you know those guys look like they have an age throughout all three all three of the movies yeah. um so it, it was fun to see where these characters went every you know 15 12 15 years or so when you check in on them 
what are they doing today? You know, kind of a thing. And then it was a nice feel to it. And, you know, uh, since uh, the movie came out in September and I've been doing comic cons and different appearances and stuff, you know, I get a, lot, a bunch of people coming up to my table going like, you son of a bitch, you made me cry. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, that means you cared. If you didn't cry, you didn't care. If you just came up and like, oh, that sucked. You know, then I'm like, oh, well, I guess I guess I didn't do my job. So. So my question to you is, as you mentioned earlier, you said that uh, Randall, uh, Dante, Jay and Bob are Kevin's favorite toys. What was your reaction when you actually read Dante's fate in that movie? Well, spoiler alert for your listeners. Um, you know, in the first movie, the original ending, you if you know what the original ending, you see what yeah. happens to Dante in the original ending. So this cat ha has had it out for the Dante forever. <laughs> since. <laughs> So uh, to see how it wraps up in three, uh, first of all, it comes out of left field for a lot of people. There are some people who kind of catch on like, oh, I, I smell something else coming um, because we're making you look at the Randall over here. Look at the Randall over here. Don't pay attention to the Dante. And then bam, here comes the Dante part. Um, I was I, I was sad and I'm not going to lie. I was, I was sad, but at the same time, in that final, in the final scene that you that that Dante talks to Randall or screams at at Randall, um, it was so well written. It was so, it was cutting, but it was pure truth at the same time. Uh, it was pain. It was agony that the character was was going through that breached the it's all about me my movie this is me it's all i'm the one who did it and to to cut to someone to like really what do you even what why do you even think you even deserve a movie that kind of a thing um i had to give it justice uh those four or five paragraphs is what i worked on the most from the very beginning i was like the rest of it i the rest of it i can kind of Dante it up, so to speak. But that, this is a part of Dante that no one has really seen. These feelings have not really ever bubbled up to the surface in any of the incarnations of Dante. So I better I better put in the work for this. And so that's what I did. I put in the work to it. Um, we only did two takes of that scene. Uh, the only reason why we did a second take is during the first take, at one part, halfway through my speech, I, I had a bit of a spit bubble in the corner of my my lip. And uh, mm -hmm. Kevin didn't want to have people just, you know, I was doing what he says, such a great performance. He didn't want to be distracted by someone just staring at like a little, you know, saliva bubble on the side of my mouth. So we did it again. And, and literally, he only used that part of when the bubble was there to uh, cover that section. And so it, that, that's the great thing about working with Kevin as well is like, he does look out for how you are looking in your scenes, how, you know, he's going to make sure visually you're not going to look too bad. I was in uh, Rome. I was on my, um, I was on an anniversary vacation and my best friend clerks three came out while I was on vacation. Mm. And I got a text while I was in Rome from my best friend saying, just seen clerks three, bawled my eyes out, glad my wife didn't go with me. And he was like, you want to see thing. Right, and I didn't, right. and I obviously didn't want to spoil the movie, so I didn't understand what he meant. Right. I come back to the States, I go see Clerks 3, didn't take my wife. Niagara Falls. Yeah. Uh, Brian, honestly, that was some of the best, honestly, some of the best acting I've seen in years. That was absolutely fantastic. And if, it, like you said, two takes, that is yeah. amazing. 
grown that that scene brought grown men to tears my friend it was absolutely phenomenal thank you i i appreciate that and uh every time someone like i said comes up and says that i uh i feel like then i've, I've done my job i've uh been able to uh to do kevin justice with the writing he gave me yeah absolutely no question about it so um i had a fan write in to ask you a question and that is if you weren't already cast as dante which view askew a character would you like to have had a shot at playing oh randall hand is down definitely randall i mean he kevin kevin wrote randall for kevin to play randall Mm. and that's why Randall has all the best lines. Uh, but if you want to step away from that, um, I don't know. I, I could have seen myself as either a Brody or, or a TS. I mean, at one time, it, it was talk for me and Jason Lee to be the two angels in Dogma. So I would have loved to, uh, and I would have been the, I believe, the Matt Damon part. And then Jason Lee would have been the, uh ben affleck part i would have loved to have done that yeah there's a lot there's a lot of really great characters that kevin has written over the years tell my listeners about the o'halloran oh the o'halloran so uh like everybody uh when lockdown happened uh you either uh got your sourdough starter going or everybody jumped on the the podcasting streamcast kind of thing I had no more. I had been wanting to do one for like five, seven years prior. I was always was buying equipment. I was talking to other podcasters, things like that. Uh, so when we couldn't go anywhere, there was no more excuses at that point. So I came up with a, a great, uh, actually, Kevin wrote once to have me be a part of one of his podcasts. And he goes, how come Brian O'Halloran doesn't have a podcast? You know, you should have like something like a, like a, I don't know, like the O'Hallorant. So like the name came from Kevin. Um, I was like, ooh, I'm totally stealing that. Uh, so I kept it in my mind. I kept it in my mind. I actually had a logo made and everything. And I would go to conventions going like, coming soon, the O'Hallorant, while I was on the road before COVID. And it just, and just never sat down and put structure to it. So then once... Once we got to that point where we were weren't going anywhere, then I was like, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, before I go out of my mind, I better start doing something with my creativity." So, um, you know, I like I bought a, a Zoom, L, you know, Live Track L8. I've got some, you know, some great Shure mics. I have a, a, a Heil mic. I have a bunch of, you know, a bu- I bought a bunch of equipment and and even equipment to like have other people in the same room which I had done before COVID. I'd go and take a couple of mics and have, there's a couple of like pre-O'Hallorant shows where it's just a podcast that's not a streamcast. And um, I haven't released those, but it'd be funny to, to have those come out mm. as well. So I did one season of it. I think I have like 13, 14 episodes on my YouTube and Facebook page of it. It's the O'Hallorant, uh, if you want to look on Facebook or on on YouTube. And... Uh, and then we started to get into pre-production of Clerks 3. I was on the road to more conventions. So I didn't have a dedicated time because my time used to be uh, Friday nights at ten, uh, Friday nights at 9 o'clock. But then when you do conventions, Friday nights, you're away. So the, the second season hasn't started yet. But now I'm, I'm looking to just start a second season again this summer. Usually summer, you know, people are not working as much as they do 
you know, when it's the the fall and the winter and the spring. So um, uh, look out for uh, season two coming, hopefully in the next uh, two or three weeks. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, if I remember correctly, and it's been a long time since I had a discussion with you about this, you have a secret passion for Formula One racing. Is that correct? I do. I do. What do you, what do you enjoy most about the sport? Well, first of all, it's a sport that they're not just driving left turns. No, no slight against NASCAR because I'm a NASCAR fan as well. And this goes back to what we talked about early in the show, which was my father. My father was very much into motorsports. Uh, we used to go here in, in New York. There's a place called uh, Wat Watkins Glen. And we used to go to Lime Rock and uh, a bunch of different tracks. Uh, and he worked for the Renault car company when they were still here in the United States. And uh, for quite a while, the battle of Formula One was the Renaults versus the McLarens, Mercedes, things like that. And the Ferraris, of course. So I got interested into it young because my dad was interested in it. And when we would go to these tracks like Lime Rock or Glen Ro or Pocono Raceway or whatever, you know, he had access to the pits and stuff like that. And you got to meet these drivers and see the actual engineering that goes into these race cars and formula one. I mean, it's argument, you know, it's, it could be argued, but I think formula one is the pinnacle of that of automotive technology. So when you, when you see those races now, obviously as some of them on, on either if you're watching it on Fox Sports Net or on uh, ESPN, some of them are like, you know, four in the morning, they're starting in like Gibraltar or whatever. Right. Um, and it's that type of thing where, you, you know, uh, I enjoyed it. I was, um, I would watch, you know, when uh, Schumacher was the big dominant force. And so, you know, the Andretti's back in the day, they would dip into Formula One, but they were more IndyCar. Um, and then you'd see those guys who would cross over from Formula One to get into IndyCar and vice versa. It's just, you know, it's, uh, there's some severe, I mean, we had the uh, Indy 500 where three wrecks towards the end of the race and the wheel went all the way so far off the course, it, it hit a car in the parking lot. Thank God nobody was injured. Right. Uh, but it's such a dangerous sport at such insanely crazy speeds mm -hmm. and the awareness of a driver to keep control of a machine going that fast and be and relying on the technology to keep you know small patches of each tire on the on the track to keep grip going while traveling at that speed it's a it's an engineering miracle sometimes that's how i came to america my father was an engineer in great britain and his job, he worked with many different teams, Renault, McLaren, to build the cars for Nigel Mansell, uh, Ayrton Center, and all those guys. And when I was a kid, um, he used to pull me out of school and he's like, don't tell your mother. Right. Pull, pull me out of school, take me to Silverstone, Brands Hatch, and what have you. And I, we go down to the pits, and here I am, a little, you know, six year old, seven year old boy walking around. There's Nigel Mansell signing autographs. There's Ayrton Center. There's, you know, Alan Prost, you know, like. Right. And I, I'm I'm too young to appreciate this. As a grown man, I'm like, you know, my head's exploding. But those are some of my favorite memories of my father. And because of his job, they expanded into aerospace. This is how we moved to we came to America. That 
these little these poor family from this village in Wales got this golden ticket to come to America and live the American dream. It's because mm -hmm. of Formula One. So I'm in in I will forever be in, endeared and indebted to Formula One for giving me this chance of, in America. I mean, they are so close in technology. You, mm -hmm. you know, as a six-year-old sitting in the pit, pits and seeing these machines was being as close to being the, to the space shuttle. Oh, absolutely. Know? And here it is. There's 15 to 25 space shuttles all lined up in a row here. Um, and they're all trying to get to the finish line. And, uh, you know, uh, there's some really great movies that capture the feeling of it. But obviously, if, unless you've been to a race and you hear that deafening roar oh, of those, yeah. bands, um, it's it's worth going to see some races. I know they they'd come to America. Now they go down to Florida, um, and uh, I'd I'd love to to catch an, a, one, another race here. Um, I, at some point in my life, one of my bucket lists is to see a race at Monaco, mm. uh, just because it's such a dynamic track. And then obviously Silverstone is another mecca that you'd want to see. Uh, a race up. Yeah. So you get a chance to talk to your younger self. What do you say to him? Oh, spend more time with your dad. He's going to be gone sooner than you think. Um, it would be the first thing. Mm. Don't, don't blow it off. Don't blow up. Don't blow him off. You know, especially as he got older, don't, don't blow him off. Um, but also um, you're going to be all right. You're going to hit some rough patches, but you're going to be all right. And, uh, you're in for an interesting ride. You're going to have uh, dreams that come true, and you're going to have dr dreams that pivoted, that changed, that morphed into other things that you least expected. I've always been kind to everybody who I've met. Um, I live by that, you know, treat others as you want to be treated yourself kind of golden rule. So I can't say to myself, you should be nicer to people because I already am. But, you know, one of them, like, make sure you have a good lawyer. <laughs> but early on, you're going to want to, you're going to wish you had a better lawyer or a lawyer at all. But otherwise, yeah, um, I, I, I definitely would tell him it's going to be all right. Like there were, there were times as a younger person in a very kind of uh, working poor kind of family where you thought, where, how am I ever getting out of this kind of a thing? But they, you know, they persevered. My mother was a lot stronger uh, than she gives herself credit for that. I'll even tell her that I won't even tell her that I'm like, you're a lot stronger than you were. Like, no, I'm not, I don't want to give her that. She'll load it over me, <laughs> load it over me rather. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it, you know, I'm sure everybody has that there's parts of them that they wish they can go back and say, Hey, you should do this. Or, Oh, when you so-and-so approaches you, you know, blah, 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 blah. But mm. You know, if you can live yourself thinking of the future, you don't have enough time to dwell on regrets. So, yeah. So what's next for Brian? What is next indeed? Um, there's a couple of films, a couple of other independent films I'm in talks with at, at the moment. I might be shooting two this, this year. One is just like a, a two-day thing. The other might be like a week or two on another project. In the meantime, I, I still do uh, my Comic-Con appearances. I'll be doing a couple of more stand-up gigs uh, this summer. Um, and everybody can find that information if you go to my Twitter page, if you're still on Twitter. It's uh, Brian C. O'Halloran on Twitter. Twitter. Also on Instagram, Brian C. as in uh, uh, 
Christopher, which is my middle name, Brian C. O'Halloran on uh, Instagram, and the Brian C. O'Halloran on Facebook, and also uh, the O'Hallorant is exactly how it sounds. The, and my last name, O'Halloran with a T. The O'Hallorant on both AOL, excuse me, at both um, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter, and uh, that'll be starting up again. You're going to see a lot of older posts on that, uh, but that'll be starting up again. And uh, from there, there's links to my link tree, and then my link tree site has all of the links to all of the uh, live appearances I'll be doing at Comic-Cons, comedy shows, etc. So when you aren't doing convention appearances and you're not acting, what do you do for fun? How do you like to unwind? Mm. Um, I have a circle of friends uh, who I've been, uh, there's this friends who I've been friends with for over 40 years uh, from middle school on. And uh, we'll do, we'll, we'll still role play. Uh, lock, that was another thing during lockdown. Besides, obviously, the podcast, we started uh, through Zoom playing a fantasy role playing again, which we've been continuing since the lockdown. So uh, once a week, we all get on Zoom. Uh, there's uh, two of them coming in from Boston. There's one that Zooms in from LA. There's one from New Jersey. And then myself in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania. And uh, we'll start like at nine o'clock at night and go to midnight. And uh, it's been kind of fun doing it that way. Um, we all have like separate cameras for our dice tray. So we just switch over to our dice tray. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. I also have an, another separate circle group of friends. Uh, these are some of my acting friends who will uh, we'll play poker. We'll play uh, Texas Hold'em poker from time to time. We usually have a gathering like once every two months or so. Same thing with uh, my stand-up comedy friends. They they love to play poker as well. Hmm. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. My question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? Well, it's kind of simple. And it's I just said it a few minutes ago. Uh, treat each other like you want to be treated. And I think that would get us a long, long, long way. Brian, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. I've been looking forward to this for the last few weeks and you have not disappointed in any way, shape or form. So thank you. And I've been wanting to say this all day. You were meant to be here today. <laughs> well, thank you, Derek, so much for uh, having me on. Uh, I know we had some uh, scheduling issues at the beginning, but I'm glad uh, we finally got to talk and hopefully we'll we'll talk to each other again in the, in the near future absolutely best of luck to you okay thank you man cheers and just like that Deval nation we come to the end of our interview with brian o'halloran i want to thank brian for being so gracious with his time and for being so open and honest with his life what an incredible experience and i hope we can get him back on the show again down the road but we are not done as a special treat for our listeners, a former guest has a musical project to promote, and I could not be happier to give him airtime to come on the show and talk about it. So welcome back to the show, former School of Rock actor and country music star, Brian Falduto. <laughs> Brian Falduto, star of episode 162. Brian, welcome back. How are you, sir? Hello. Oh, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. How was the weather on New York City today? 
the weather today was gorgeous. We had like 60, uh, I think it was a high of 73, actually. Um, and I was actually doing a spa day today. Um, my partner's birthday is this week and he gets like a free spa day. So we decided to redeem that today. And we're outside by the pool in October in New York City. It's unheard of. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I have to ask you, because like I said, you came on my show the last time. How did your song Big Boys Club do? How how was the song? How how did it, how was it received? Oh, it's been great. Um, it actually did so well that we decided to give it this remix. We did a Pride remix in June, and that went that went really well. A lot of DJs have been like throwing it into their sets, um, and it's performing pretty well on like streaming platforms and whatnot. I think people enjoy the message of the song. We we played it on the show, and it was well received. I own it personally. I thought it was a great track. And hey. I'm just I'm glad that I'm glad it it's so well for you. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate that. All right. So like I said, you have some great news coming out. You have a new single, Just a Phase. Tell us about this new track. Yeah, so this is actually one of the first songs I ever wrote. I wrote it shortly uh, after my first relationship ended, which was my first queer relationship. Uh, we came out together and this song is about that. And it's uh it's about sort of looking back on a relationship and realizing that you have different perspectives of the relationship and you view it differently. And I felt like the way that he sort of moved on from our relationship kind of made our relationship feel like it was nothing where it actually meant a lot for me. It was very formative and important to me. So that's kind of what the sentiment is about. And I think people can relate to that. You know, this idea that you're, you were just a phase in someone's life can be sort of invalidating at times. Right. Um, but it's also like a, uh, a bit of a true sentiment. So, um, so yeah, that's what the song is about. It's got like this 90s country flair, just like all my stuff does, but it's a little bit more like moody and like atmospheric. It's got some modern elements as well. I tried a new producer on this one and I'm just so happy with how it came out. Yeah, I've listened to it three times now and I have to admit it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely a new departure from your regular sound. And I have to admit, it's got that it's kind of got a little bit of a Tom Petty kind of vibe to it as well. It's kind of even mm. though it's even though it's definitely country, it's got that Tom Petty kind of vibe to it as well. I definitely picked up on that. Uh definitely a, a great track, and I know it's gonna be a big hit. I really appreciate that observation because yeah, uh, it definitely falls under the umbrella of country still, but it's just a little bit more like, I kind of want, I kind of say like lives in like Alanis Morissette territory, even I oh, love the top okay. heavy reference, you know, it's like, uh, it's got a little bit of like pop flair to it as well. Yeah. It's mm. exciting. Yeah. You, one of the questions we asked when you had you on your show, you know, is who are your influences, but you just mentioned Alanis is Alanis someone that you kind of aspire to. Is it someone you look up to? No, so I mean, like my album that came out in March. I mean, yeah, obviously, Atlantis is great. <laughs> like, definitely, uh, I would be happy to follow in her footsteps. But um, my album that came out in March, it's mostly influenced by like the the people I grew up listening to, right? Like Shania Twain, Faith Hill, Carrie Underwood, Rascal Flatts, uh, all those like big '90s, early 2000s country artists. But that's not really what I listen to these days. I feel like, I mean, it is. I throw it on all the time, but like. Um, I think where I'm at these days is a little left of that. And like, uh, it's still very country, but it's more like Casey Musgraves, Brandy Carlisle, um, Fancy Hood Good, Chris Stapleton, people who are a little bit more like rootsy sounding, I guess, and and tying in that like folk rock element at times and um, experimenting with sounds. And I feel like that's what this track sort of hints at. It's kind of the direction I want to go in. I wanted to make an album that sort of paid homage to the stuff I grew up on, but made it queer. And now I want to just like release the stuff that I'm into, you know? Right. Are you going to be a, one of those country singers like Taylor Swift just goes completely pop one day? 
<laughs> um, I don't know. Probably not, but potentially, <laughs> who knows? All right. No, honestly, this, the track is solid. Like I said, I've, like I said, I've heard it a few times now. Uh, there's some definitely some great lyrics in it, and I definitely can pick up on the vibes. Like I said, you definitely, I could definitely tell your heart was hurting in in the in the lyrics, and the fact that you bear your soul in this song definitely speaks to your talents as a songwriter. Oh yeah, I appreciate that. Yes, it was. It was tough, you know, that first love, right? That can really, that can really leave a lingering impact, and he certainly did. And uh, this song is sort of about that. What are your thoughts about a new album, or is it just going to be singles for now, or maybe an EP? So we're actually working on an extended version of Gay Country, my album that came out in March. So we're gonna gonna maybe tack some songs onto it that that sort of still belong in that territory. I think Just a Phase is sort of like a sampling of where I want to go next right um mm -hmm. but now i'm gonna i have all these other songs that i think really do belong with the collection of songs that were on gay country so i'm gonna like sort of finish that chapter out with his extended album and then continue probably from there with different singles and different styles and and all that kind of stuff right on okay we are gonna go ahead and take a listen to that track now here is brian valduto's just a phase I'm behind this corner trying to keep my head down I'm here on the border trying to keep from screaming out I wish I wasn't hearing what you're saying But I can't leave now you say that you're happier than you have ever been You say your love's a fire that's burning deep within You say before this your life didn't really quite begin And then you're asked about how you been without Since you stopped going out With me Oh, that It was just a phase Excuse me, what did you just say? Do you really look back on your time with me like that? What about those days? Still singing about you I'm here totally aware And okay that we're through Healing just takes some time When love is true I don't really understand How you can be so good I don't think your happiness That's up to what it should I think you're spewing lies About what's under that hood Cause when you're asked about how you been without, somehow without a doubt, you say, oh, that it was just a phase, excuse me, what did you just say, do you really look back on your time with me like that, what about those Nothing beyond 
Congratulations on the track, and thanks for taking the time to come on the show. You are welcome back on the show anytime, my friend. No, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Derek. All right, good luck to you. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of our milestone episode 200. We have had one hell of a journey these last 100 episodes, including key members from the Apollo Space Program, famous actors and musicians, a Nobel laureate, Ginger Z, and so many notable guests. I can't tell you right now who we have lined up for the 200s, but I am looking at the scheduled lineup, and it's a real eclectic guest list, and I think the quality will remain what you've come to expect. So like I always say, be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Dahl Show is a great little store on there, and we are with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner that left us as merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, you know, um, we lost Matthew Perry this weekend, and this one hurts, folks. I will tell you a quick story. I never knew who Matthew Perry was until around 2002. I was in the Navy, and if you know me in the real world, you know I am extremely sarcastic and very big on one-liners. Well, one day, a person in my office called me Chandler Bing. I was like, what the hell is a Chandler Bing? He put on an episode of Friends. After giving me seven seasons of DVDs to catch up on, I was hooked. And Matthew Perry became a comedy hero of mine. So I dedicate episode 200 to the memory of Matthew Perry. Heaven got a bit funnier on Saturday. No star, God bless. And see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.